Okay, so welcome everybody. Um, I just actually gave um, one of these classes in Salem on Friday, and I realized by the end of it that I spoke for an hour and that we only had about five minutes to meditate at the end. Uh, so I listened to the talk, and it was a good talk, but I realized that I say um every couple words, so I'm really trying, this is one of the biggest mindfulness tests for me, is to try to speak without saying um in the middle. So you can raise your hand if I say um. Yeah. It's going to be very embarrassing, but that's okay. Try not to say like. <laughs> that's, that's step two. <laughs> step two. Because like is actually a word we can still use. Something is like something. So, there's a couple different things people said that feel like they could be good kind of entrance points into this. On Facebook today, I went on and there's this man that I'm friends with and he, I don't know if he was ever a monk, but he, on his Facebook picture, it's him sitting in front of people and he's on a little platform, so he's some kind of a meditation teacher. And he posted, I don't know if it was a quote or just kind of his own thoughts, but it said something along the lines of, only when you stop, oh no, okay, it was, Awakening is not the goal. It is something that happens along the way. So I wrote to him, so what is the goal? If awakening isn't the goal, what is the goal? And then he responded by writing, you know, kind of in-depthly about, it's really hard not to say um so much. He wrote really in-depthly about that only once you let go of trying to have a goal can you really start practicing, is kind of what he wanted to say. Mm -hmm. Was that when you are kind of, in Buddhism we use the word grasping a lot, you know, when you're grasping onto this goal, when there's this thing that you want to get, you're actually creating a lot of stress for yourself. That there's this thing that's not here and I want that thing. And... Anytime we're, you know, fighting against the present moment in terms of wanting something to be here that's not or wanting to get rid of something that is, that creates stress in us. That's just a, a natural thing. Yeah, so anytime that you feel stressed, you could actually look and say, what about the present moment am I at war with? What am I fighting against? What am I not accepting? <clears throat> so stress is a little bit like an alarm bell in that sense. And also it's not a bad thing. Because, you know, if some of these animals, you know, if you took, if a wolf came into that door right now and you felt a little stressed, you know, I wouldn't say, oh, just sit down and breathe. Like, no, I mean, stress has a function also, right? Even a very primitive function of it'll, it energizes you to do something to save your own life, right? Or save somebody else's life or take action. Stress however, gets unproductive when there's too much of it, when we make too much of it, when we're just always kind of in stress and it never has an end. Which means that we're always trying to get somewhere or get something that's not here. 
So this man was really saying that when you practice, you need to practice kind of with abandon. You have to practice in a way that you're doing what you need to do, but not wanting the results. This is actually a very profound teaching. This was a huge realization that I myself made when I was in the monastery. So I was a, a monk for eight years. And when I was meditating, I saw for myself also that I was really trying to meditate. It was this thing that I was trying to do, and it didn't really work, so I felt very frustrated, and it was this whole thing, and I didn't think I could do it. And it kind of took me till I just found the right teacher, I guess, that kind of could get through to me. And he said, you know, if you're getting more stressed when you meditate, then just throw the meditation out the window. He said, then don't try to meditate anymore. He said, just sit and relax. So just breathe, relax. Don't try to do anything. He said, anyway, meditation, it's a, a feeling process. You have to feel your way into it, right? It's about, it's about getting more relaxed and peaceful. Then we should let that feeling of relaxation and peace be our guide. Whatever feels more relaxing and more peaceful in the meditation, then follow that. Don't follow the instructions from the Buddha in your head or the thing that that guy said that sounded really enlightened or what Thich Nhat Hanh wrote in his book. It's not about following these kind of conceptual instructions, but it's about really being honest to yourself. For myself, what brings me deeper into that state of peace and calm and stillness? So if we're trying to meditate, often we're going the opposite direction because we're creating more stress for ourselves versus really just chilling out, which is what this is all about. There's a Tibetan monk and his word for it was chillax. He said, everyone just chillax. Just sit and chillax. This is where, yeah. You can like write it on the wall. <laughs> so the other thing from that post that I, I kind of responded to is I thought, you know, one side of what he said, that's very accurate, right? It's very accurate that if you're pushing something, if you're holding on to something too tight, you're going to create more problems for yourself. But on the other hand, if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't know where you're going, if you don't have some kind of intention or motivation, then how are you any different than the guy just sitting in traffic, just kind of being mad at everything, right? I mean, so there is kind of that, that interplay, that relationship between still having a goal, still putting in the work, right? Still putting in the effort, still doing something in the right direction, inclining yourself in the right way, but then kind of doing it. And I, my first response when I read that post is I said, this is a, actually a post about methodology. It's not a post about what spirituality is, but it's a post about methodology that the method that we should use is a method of release. It's, in a, in a relaxed, open, peaceful way. Um, if you want peace, then be peaceful. Right? There's a lot of people these days that are fighting. They're fighting each other. They're fighting ideas. They're fighting to try to create peace. And sometimes, of course, we, have to, we do have to act if something's out of balance. You know, Star Wars, right? Sometimes you have to act if something's out of balance um, to bring balance back. Right? But at the same time, we'll often see that we kind of have to be the example of what we want. 
that it's really easy to kind of fight against all these different things and think when all of those different things stop, then the world will be this beautiful utopia and we can all relax. Um, that's not realistic. That's unrealistic. The world will never be any less broken than it is today because it's never been less broken ever. If you really go back through history, you can kind of see, even in the times of the Buddha, they have texts and you read through them and it's like the same things we're facing now. It's not, not much has changed. We have iPhones, right? But, you know, it, a lot of, it was the same interplay of, of things and people and ideas and conditions and clashes. And so there is no end to that. That's just the human drama. That's just the theater of the world that we're all in. So we don't need to worry about creating this utopia or saving the world or all these kind of very uplifted ideas. I don't know if anyone in this room is doing that anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but that's even for yourself because ultimately what I felt mostly when I read this thing on Facebook is that I kind of felt sometimes I feel that spiritual people are a little bit more harmful than they realize that they are. Because sometimes we present spiritual ideals, we present things that sound good, that somehow resonate with the texts, or they sound something you could say in a yoga class, and everyone's like, oh, namaste, that was a good one, you know. But if you really think about what it does to feed people these ideals, yeah, it can give you something to strive towards, and it can give you something to move towards and develop towards, but generally, I found it actually does the opposite and it gives people more ammo to beat themselves over the head with. To keep showing themselves that I'm not good enough, that I can't do that, that they, that ultimately I feel for especially people in the West, especially people in New England, you know, um, is that we're, you know, a kind of a, a society of go-getters, of pushers. We're trying to strive and move forward and, you know, professionals and trying to, you know, we have a certain energy about us um, that, what we actually need, it's a lot more of, of heart energy. We really need more of an energy that says, you're okay, you're good enough, you've done enough, you can take a break, everything's okay, you're okay like you are, your flaws are okay, your imperfections are okay. Yeah, that we are all imperfect, we are all imperfections. Yeah. And I've really found that this is the biggest energy that's missing um, from spiritual communities in general also, just in society. But, but, you know, in places like this, it's really important to give people that message that says, it's not about getting yourself up there. It's not about jumping up to this big thing and being like Jesus walking through, you know. It's actually the other way. It's actually more about being loving and accepting it's not about trying to be Jesus in terms of this guy on the, on the altar. It's about trying to be Jesus in terms of who was that man, right, this person. And I'm Jewish, so, you know, whatever, talking about mm -hmm. Jesus. But Jesus was Jewish too, so it's okay. But, um, but, you know, somebody who comes to the world to help others. Somebody who humbles themselves before others. Who connects to other people out of love, out of compassion. If you really look around at who are the real spiritual teachers these days, the messages that they preach are not these kind of high ideals. They really preach just very basic kindness to others. You listen to the Dalai Lama, the Pope right now, he's awesome. Yeah, a lot of the Buddhist teachers actually. There's really the biggest thing that comes across is this kindness and this gentleness. 
And it's not so much that you have to do this to be okay. You have to do this to be a good student, to be a good meditator, to be a good person, to succeed. You know, they've realized that we are so, we've built up such a momentum. So I teach in schools, right? So I'm in the middle schools. I actually went to High Plains. I went to the elementary school. And I spoke with the principal and the vice principal and some parents. And I spoke to a little panel of people there. And they said to me that uh, kindergartners are now getting stressed out about the MCAS test that they have to take in third grade. And that they're now so busy doing preparation work that they had to put all the art easels away. And they haven't taken them out in two years in kindergarten. They haven't painted in two years because they've been preparing for the MCAS they take in third grade. So just thinking about that, right? So it's not a question and answer, Benjamin. Okay, go ahead. Um, <laughs> so we just literally just had MCAS a few days ago, but um, I think it was last week. But we um, honestly, the we had MCAS prep in September. <coughs> or something as early as that. Like yeah. as soon as we got into school, it's just like okay, this is what we're learning. Yeah. So it's younger and younger. We're starting to train even our children, right? To to be worried, to be stressed, to have in mind achieving, have in mind success, having in mind that you have to get above a certain bar. You have to rise above a certain bar to be something, to, to be a successful person, to be an achiever, whatever that would be called. And one of the biggest things that I've realized since working in schools and also reflecting on my own life is that school is very tricky in terms of it's a very clearly defined structure of this is what it means to succeed, this is what it means to fail. Yeah, if you do this, you do well, you get good grades, you succeed. If you don't do what you're supposed to, you get punished, you get kicked out, you get zeros. You know, and there's a lot of voices that say if you don't do what you're supposed to, you don't get into college, you won't get a job, you'll be some kind of a poor drug addict on the street or something someday. I don't know what the end, end game of the fear is. But that you have to really succeed in this world and a lot of people, when they get out of school, you know, well, then they go to college because that's the next step. Then I have to get this thing to get a good job, to get a family, to get money, to do it. You know, we have this whole thing. But what happens actually is when you get out of school, and what I did, so I was very lucky that I graduated from college, and I went to school for fine art, so it's not like I really had plans for life after that anyway. It's kind of like, it's just like painting on cardboard, you know, and then I get out of school, I'm like, well, let's see what happens, you know. Um, I went right into a monastery. And I felt like, um, oh, there it is. I felt like all of the people that I knew that were my age were kind of still in that momentum from school that they were really striving and then they were getting jobs and they were trying to find this best thing and then they were getting partners and they were having kids and they were kind of going through the stages, 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 stages. But I'm at the monastery and then I have all these people coming up to me when they're, you know, in their 50s and they're saying, I really don't know what I did with my life. You know, I guess that's what a midlife crisis, right? So this whole thing that all those people that just keep doing what the next step is supposed to be, at some point down the road, look back and they're like, what am I doing? Why am I, you know, what have I been doing? I've been just running off of this momentum. And because I didn't go into that, because I just stayed there and I saw everyone kind of running past me, but I just waited and looked around and I kind of said, what is this? Where am I? I took the time to just reflect and to be present. It became really clear that in the real world, 
there is no definition of success. There is nothing. The world is an open platform. There's no... You could define success yourself. You can define success for yourself, meaning it means to be rich or famous. You could define success yourself to say that means having a good relationship. Right? But other people would define success as I got to see all the countries in the world. Other people could define success as like I got to spend a lot of time in the forest every day. Other people define success that say I, I get to use face paints before I get in the bathtub. I don't know, that was a weird one. <laughs> but, but we define that ourselves after that. And I think that in our culture, a lot of us never took that moment to just step back from our lives and realize there is no structure around us anymore except the one that either we willingly enter or the one that we put on ourselves. And this is also from families, from parents, right? A lot of parents say to us, this is what... This is what it means to be successful. This is what it means to be a good person. You know, their values, their ideas, their beliefs. And then we take that, so we have kind of a structure in our head, but we don't often reflect on those and say, well, do I agree with those values? Do I agree with those beliefs? So that joke that I told at the very beginning about, you know, that, that all these people are, you know, in this field and they're burning and then they say, she says to Lucifer, what is this? And he said, you know, the Christians won't have it any other way. You know, what that's saying is that that's because in these people, they believe that because they did this and this and this in this lifetime, that they're going to be punished in the next lifetime. So they kind of create this for themselves. They're getting what they believe that they deserve. So my teacher, Achim Brahm, one of my meditation teachers, he said, in Buddhism, there's also these different realms of rebirth, which you could also think about as even just places here on this earth, that you can live like in a hellish state. You can feel like you're in hell on this earth. You can feel like you're a hungry ghost. You can never be satisfied. There's never enough. You could feel like you're an animal. You're just concerned about your base instincts and nothing else. You could feel like a heavenly being. You could feel like the world is beautiful and it's a sunny day and everything's so nice. All these people are so, you know. There's different ways we can perceive the world and we kind of go through these different spheres even throughout a single day. Um, but he said, often you're drawn into what you think you deserve. So he said that from his experience, people that end up in hell, it's because they think they deserve that. Because they don't forgive themselves. They don't love themselves. They think that I've done something, I deserve this. Through their own belief system, they pull themselves down there. Because he also does work in prisons. And he said, I've never seen a murderer. I've never seen a rapist. I've never seen a thief. He said, I only have seen people that have murdered, people that have raped, people that have stolen. So he said, if you focus on the person, not the action, if you focus on the person, that person has qualities that are worth saving. That person has beauty inside. That person has something that matters. But if you focus on the actions, then you're stuck. And he said, furthermore, because all of us have done stupid things in our lives. He said, everybody has done really stupid things. That's just what it means to be human. It's how we learn. We do stupid things. Yeah, but if you don't know how to forgive that, to understand why you did that, what you thought was going to come, how that was a wrong understanding, and you hold on to that, then you're kind of, it's like you're holding on to a big cannonball and you jump into the water and it just pulls you down to the bottom, right? Like regrets, they just hold you down. 
even though it's past. And the way he described it, he said it's the difference between a parent, if there's two parents in the grocery store, he said if one of them drops the jar of honey and it explodes, and then there's a kid in the next aisle who drops a jar of jam and it explodes, and one mother says, you're really stupid, you know that? And the other mother says, that was a really stupid thing you did. He said, those are the two differences. Because one, you're calling the person stupid. You believe that you are stupid for doing something. And the other one, he said, that was a stupid thing you did. That you're okay, but that action needs to be corrected. So because a lot of us haven't really focused more deeply on kind of our internal belief systems, we haven't focused more deeply on the the momentum that's been running our lives and the structures that have been around us, we kind of just keep running. And we're not necessarily even so sure about why or what, what our real motivation is. What is it that we're really trying to achieve? What is our actual end game? And so things like midlife crises, right? That's why they happen. But I can even say for myself that you know, when I went into the monastery, I was 22, I think I went into the monastery. And I remember my first meditation retreats. I would sit there, and the things that would come up, it was just all of these things about my life that I had never dealt with, that I had never really figured out how to heal, what to do with. And I saw them still happening. So, for instance, in the monastery, somebody would say to me, um, it would be nighttime, I'd be really tired, I just kind of worked all day. Somebody would say to me, uh, Seth, I need you to go clean something upstairs. And I was put in this situation where I felt that if I said no, that that person had the right to be angry at me and I would feel guilty because they needed my help and I didn't do it. But if I said yes, then as I was cleaning the whole time, I would be mad at them in my head and having an, a conversation even though it wasn't happening about you know, that I would be angry. So I was faced with these two options, either feel guilty or feel angry. Yeah, those are my two choices. Feel guilty, feel angry. And over time, what I came to see was that, oh, when I was a child, I never was allowed to say no. When I was a child, I wasn't allowed to say no. And I know some people here like, no, my parents and stuff. But, but like, I wasn't allowed to say no. And often the way that that was dealt with was was force, was an overpower, I was overpowered. If I said, if I didn't want to do it, then I was overpowered, right? Whether sent to your room or you're slapped or whatever, it's like, so as a kid, you have to obey, you have to be obedient. And if you don't want to be obedient, there's a consequence. So I never grew up feeling like I was allowed to say no. I didn't have a healthy no inside of me. I thought that if I didn't do what I was supposed to do, people were allowed to be angry at me. And as I was sitting and these feelings were coming up and I'd sit and I was having these conversations in my head fighting with people, you know, I kind of would slowly start to look at this. And it was this kind of slow transformation process that then in my actual life, I was allowed to start saying no to people. You know, and it was really scary at first. I remember I was like shaking the first time I like really had a confrontation. I had to say no. I was like, Ugh. But it worked and I became more and more comfortable that it was okay and I'm allowed. And if someone's angry, that's their problem, not mine, right? Mm. So, and also why I'm talking about all this stuff in a meditation class, by the way. I don't know if anyone's wondering. But. but it's the same thing. So meditation is kind of what starts to happen when we've begun clarifying our mind and our emotions. 
So if you are sitting here, starting from the very beginning of what I was saying at this class, if you're sitting here and you're focusing on getting peaceful, of getting your mind quiet, and you're like sitting there like uh, trying to get peaceful and it's not working, and like what the hell, and this stupid Seth monkey doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> tried this for weeks and it doesn't work, and I told Roberta I couldn't do this. And, you know, you're just creating pain for yourself, right? You're creating more frustration because you don't realize that you're holding on to something instead of just being peaceful, being present. So when you start letting go of things and you start becoming more present, and letting go of things means also like creating an emotional awareness for yourself. So like I said, things like saying no, things like in your daily life, you start to clarify themes and issues around you that you feel more relaxed and more at peace, and you start to see your own mind more clearly. We can only see our own mind in relationship. Okay? You can only see your own mind in relationship. If you're sitting alone in a cave meditating, the world is great. There's no problems. I've been there. Yeah, everything's so happy and it's uplifted and oh my God, I'm like a Buddha and it's so cool. You know? And you come and you start talking to people and the first thing you think is, oh, these people, they're so unconscious and unrefined and they don't... You know, and you get really judgmental and you get really... You know, until you realize this is, this is me. This is my... My anger's my problem. My judgment's my problem. This is all my own stuff that I haven't dealt with because I never saw it because I wasn't in relationship to anything. So we need to be in relationship. That brings up our stuff. We get to see it. But also when you're meditating and you're, then you're in relationship to your practice or in yoga too, right? Right? So you're stretching, you're in yoga and then you start to also same feelings. Oh, I don't know if I can do this. This is too much. Then all these voices, all these feelings, all this stuff comes up and then you're like, wow, okay. It seems like I really give up really easily when there's a challenge or... I really don't hold myself in high regard. I kind of keep telling myself I should quit, even though I could probably keep going. So only in relationship to different things, to people, to activities, do we start to see our minds. And only when you've started kind of tweaking and deprogramming the mind does it start to find this place of rest. Because you slowly start to feel more peaceful, you start to feel more present, and then when you close the mind, you kind of go into that. If you haven't dealt with anything in your life in terms of, if you haven't really faced yourself, if you're living a life that's not really in your integrity, um, some people are in careers or relationships or just different situations or they have some kind of bad habits that they really don't feel good about, that's going to start pulling your mind down. You're going to sit to meditate and that stuff's going to come up or your body's going to react and you're going to feel that and it's going to kind of overtake you. So, again, this teacher that I was with, Achin Brahm, he said if people came to him and they said they're having trouble meditating, the first thing he would ask them is, what were you doing before you tried to meditate? That he wouldn't talk about the meditation. He would roll the clock back and say, what is the karma you've been creating? Karma meaning here cause and effect. Right? So, if you went and you stole a bunch of money from somebody and then you came to sit and meditate, the whole time you were sitting here, you'd be worried and thinking about that. And, oh my God, the cop's going to come in here. Right? Because that's your, this worry, this fear, that's the karma from stealing this thing. Right? Or likewise, you know, because I didn't say no in a situation, then I had the karma of fighting against people in my mind that I wasn't able to speak out against in real life. So what meditation really also helps you with is seeing which parts of your life have you not really resolved. Where are you still at odds with yourself? Because when you're not at odds with yourself in any way, you'll sit to meditate. 
I went to, um, in Germany actually, I also was teaching kids, and I talked in the middle school, and we did a, a small meditation, five, ten minutes. And I said, how was it? And there was this little Vietnamese girl in the front row, and she said, yeah, you know, I sat and I breathed, and I felt so peaceful, and then like my body disappeared, and then I saw this big light in front of me, this really bright light, and I just felt this like eternal peace, and I wanted to stay there forever. So the state she's describing is called a jhana. And in Buddhism, this is the highest meditational state. All of the monks that I know that go off to Burma and practice for 20 years and like austerities are trying to get into this place. And this little 12-year-old girl, because she just had a really pure mind, she just fell right into it. Yeah, that she didn't have to do any pre-work. She just sat down and breathed and she hit the state right away. And the Buddha said, like, yeah, pretty much when you're in that state, the path to enlightenment becomes pretty clear. Like, that's, if you can get there, it means you've done all of the back work already, that you're already ready to kind of, you know. So it's not necessarily that the more that you sit, the more that you breathe, the more that you focus, the more that you try, the more hour. That's not necessarily the key to having a peaceful mind, right? That works together. What we do in this room has to work together with what we're doing out there. Yeah, that they have to work together. If you're living a life out there that's filled with all sorts of, yeah, struggle, fight, pain, not being in your own integrity about things, you're going to come in here and all that stuff's going to be coming up. So it's always important for me to kind of address this part of things without even talking about meditation as a, as a thing to begin with. Okay? Um, so, when I speak about meditation, I think the most important thing to know, and this is similar to what this man posted, is that you, you cannot meditate. Meditation is what happens when you stop trying to do anything. Meditation is what happens when you allow yourself to rest. Because the way that the mind works when we say concentrate, yeah? So the only way that we've learned how to concentrate is through force, right? You're in class, you're doing stuff. You have to force your mind to concentrate. And it's hard, it's exhausting, and it's not sustainable. Ben, when you have to sit in class, you sit in math class, in class, and they're telling you to focus, focus, focus. How long does that work for? Um, in my school math, it I can usually do it, but I used to take, some of you might be familiar with this, but Russian math, that's about <coughs> two and a half hours long. Oh, God. Um, and they're telling me to focus for the entire two and a half hours. I cannot sustain that. I can do about, like, one hour maximum. Yeah. One hour is still pretty amazing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like brain dead. <laughs> right. You're brain dead. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. So when I was in school, I was also diagnosed with ADHD. And they gave me medication that I took for a little while. And it was really amazing. Like it really sharpened. I mean, I, I did some amazing artwork during that time. Like, like realistic drawings, you know. Um, but I got off it after, you know, I think a couple months because I was losing weight. I didn't feel good. And I realized there's nothing wrong with me. 
I don't need to be taking medication because I don't fit into this box, right? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. I just need to be doing something else than sitting in this class. But what I started learning in the monastery was that that was because I was taught by school, I was being taught a really stupid way of concentration. That it was really stupid. It's stupid to force your mind to something where it doesn't want to be because what's going to happen? You guys, a lot of you are talking about dogs and stuff. What if you take a dog and you try to force it into a situation it doesn't want to be in? It'll bite you. Yeah, it'll bite you. What about if you take a baby and you force it in a situation it doesn't want to be in? Yeah. What if I take like your husbands or your kids or your you know, I force them in a situation they don't want to be into? Yeah. Yeah. So if, if something's forced, something's forced. It's not happy. Something's forced in a way it doesn't want to be. It's going to rebel. It's going to react. Right? But we do that to ourselves. Constantly. So in meditation, if you're trying to force yourself to breathe, to pay attention, to relax, you're just going to be everywhere but. You're going to be fighting and reacting. Because it's stupid. Yeah? So when you really want to train a dog, you know, what do you do with it? What do the, the trainers have in their little pouch? Treats. Treats, yeah. yeah. So what it, why, does it treat, why does it treat? What is that about? Positive reinforcement. Yeah, kind of like an incentive. Yeah, positive reinforcement. Because what happens when something comes that's pleasurable? Yeah? If there's something pleasurable, where's your mind? Well, focusing on it. Obtaining that pleasure. What if, you already ha- what if that pleasure's happening right now? So you want to keep when you're sitting on a beach, it's beautiful, beautiful ocean, it's warm, the sun's out, ah, the waves, you're not focusing on trying to keep it going. You're just, ah. Yeah, but where's your mind at that time? Relaxed. Yeah, it's relaxed and you're just there. That's why when people come back from vacation, they look so like radiant and you know, but it's not about the beach. It's because their mind was in that state of not wanting to be anywhere else for a week. So they came back and they were just glowing. That glow doesn't come from Florida. It's not like the Florida glow. You don't go to Florida and you come back glowing. That glow, it's from their minds because their mind was happy to be where it was for a week. And so they came back and they were rejuvenated. Yeah? So if concentrating the mind by forcing it to be somewhere it doesn't want to be is not sustainable and it's exhausting, but if you go somewhere that you do want to be and your mind naturally becomes present, it naturally concentrates, right? It comes together, yeah? And then you're full of energy and you're relaxed and you're happy. That's kind of saying to us right there, this is how the mind works. If you force the mind, it gets unhappy. If you give the mind something that it likes, it really hap- it, it'll pull you. It's like the dog on the leash. When it sees it, it'll pull you towards it. So knowing that this is how the mind works, applying that now to meditation, what does that mean? Because meditation, it's amazing because it's, you're just working with the mind. It's like the only activity you do all day long that's just pure mind work. There's nothing else, ha- it's just happening within the mind, right? So also, I'm, you know, since I've left the monastery, a lot of people say to me, how are you so good at so many things? There's a lot of things that I'm really good at. And it's because when you work on the mind, 
then when you turn it outwards again, a lot of things just make sense because you're working at the center of everything, you're working at the controller. So knowing that when the mind feels pleasure, it concentrates naturally. When the mind feels unhappiness, when it feels pressure, when it feels force, it fights back, it runs away then we can see, okay, so how do we create pleasure in ourselves by kind of just doing nothing? And I think that that's the only part that one needs to figure out when one is approaching meditation. So throwing everything else away, just realizing that the mind will naturally become present when the mind is happy. Then we say, okay, so how do I make the mind happy? Again, one part, like I said before, it's dealing with your life in a way that you feel more proud of yourself, you feel more in your integrity, you feel more happy to be you, you feel good in your skin, then you naturally will sit down and have that kind of sense of contentment in you. The other way, like we said before again, is letting go of all expectations, letting go of all goals, letting go of trying to meditate or pushing yourself to meditate or doing something, really letting all that stuff go. Yeah. And the other way, it's honestly just relaxing. That when I meditate, and I can really drop right in, and I can meditate, my longest time of just sitting straight through was a little more than three hours of just kind of sitting and breathing, and it went like that. Because when you get into that state, it's so refreshing, it's so energizing, you don't want to go anywhere else. And the way into that state is you sit, you close your eyes, you relax. You start to let go, you breathe. You allow your breath to feel relaxing. You allow yourself to feel peaceful. You feel the space around you, that there's this peaceful space. You feel the muscles, you allow yourself to smile. This is like a huge one that a lot of people don't even know, is that smiling, some of the best instruction I've ever got from a teacher, he said, you know, don't do anything, just sit and smile. He said, sit and smile. And I, that was like my, one of my big access points to meditation as I sat. <laughs> and then I kind of realized, you know, the smile, it feels good. Like around my, my cheeks, it's like a pleasurable feeling right here. And then I kind of feel, like I feel funny, which makes me like <laughs> kind of smile more. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, but I just sit with that because for me that smile, it kind of also is like an anchor point. It anchors me here. And I really, what you said about the paper and the dryer with the black, I'm, I didn't fully get what you were saying, but it reminded me of something else. Um, it was about focus. If I'm trying to focus and get that black piece of paper, yeah. all the white ones are yeah. going around the way. So what it is is that like, I'll sit here and I'll smile and I'll feel the space around me, right? So the spaciousness, this relaxation is a good feeling. And then thoughts will come up, things will come up. And the mind will go off all by itself, okay? Another <coughs> news flash for everybody. Yeah, your mind will run away by itself. And the next part of the news flash is that your mind will also come back all by itself. So a lot of us are control freaks, and when we've realized that our mind has run away, we try to yank it back. Or when it's come back, we try to quickly go back to our breath. No. 
the mind is going to leave by itself because it's not content in the present moment. And then the mind's going to come back all by itself because it's going to feel something that's nice and it's going to go off and it's going to come back. Your only job is to focus on the black piece of paper in the dryer with all the other stuff flowing around it, which means that you focus on the smile, you focus on the relaxation. You focus on the one thing in your perception that feels nice and relaxed. And everything else is going to come and go and spin and your mind's going to disappear and it's going to come back and it's going to disappear and come back. And every time your mind comes back, your only job is to relax more, to enjoy more. Your only job is to feed the conditions, right? Buddhism's all about conditions. If you feed the conditions, which is creating that happy, relaxed, peaceful mind, the mind will then want to stay there. It's like you're holding up a treat. The dog will keep coming back. And eventually the dog will just stay. Eventually you feel so relaxed and so peaceful, the mind starts to feel content. And so the mind gradually and naturally starts to concentrate on itself because it doesn't want to go anywhere. And that's the beginning of the end. Because when the mind starts to concentrate and it's happy, then it starts to concentrate more because it's getting happier. And the more that it comes together, the more it becomes happy and content. And it creates what's called a positive feedback loop. Yeah, and then the, the feeling of peace, the feeling of happy, that's what pulls you into the deepest meditation states. Yeah, that's actually, it. it's, an, it's, an, it's an emotion. It's not your breath, right? Concentration is a byproduct of a positive feeling. Yeah, so with meditation, we always talk about concentration, concentration, concentration. Concentration is a byproduct of a positive feeling. Because you've created a positive, relaxed feeling, the mind then concentrates, right? If you're trying to force the mind to concentrate, you're creating an unpleasant feeling and the mind will run off. So again and again and again, in meditation practice, you're letting go. You're not trying to get anywhere. You're not trying to meditate. You are only just resting. You're allowing. You're allowing yourself to rest, to let go, to be, to breathe and the mind will naturally come back and just waiting, staying in that state. It's like you're waiting for a bus that's never coming and you're totally happy with that. You're just sitting in the bus stop, just waiting, yeah? The true meaning of patience. The true meaning of patience is waiting for something without expecting it to come. So why don't we take this impulse and we'll go into a meditation, okay? Can we turn the lights down? Yeah.